0: If you're a regular Geek's Guide to the Galaxy listener, please rate and review us on iTunes or using the podcast app on your phone. We currently have 984 five-star ratings, and it would be great to get that up to a 1,000. And so I want to give a special thank you to Matthias Kamm, who just gave us this five-star review. I was a huge sci-fi reader in earlier years, but thanks to this podcast, I've now discovered numerous authors I somehow bypassed. Enjoying *Store of the Worlds now by Sheckley. Fantastic. The podcast and Sheckley. Amber is next in the queue. Beyond that, waiting for you for more referrals, David. No pressure. Well, some. So big thanks again to Matthias Kahn for that great review. All right, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The
1: Geek's Guide
0: to the Galaxy And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 479 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Our guest today is Richard Carrier, who you may remember from our review of Noah back in episode 108, our review of Exodus, Gods, and Kings back in episode 130, and our review of Risen back in episode 192. He holds a PhD in ancient history from Columbia, and is the author of many books, including On the Historicity of Jesus, which is the first peer-reviewed academic book to make the case that Jesus Christ may never have existed. Richard recently summarized those arguments in his new book, Jesus from Outer Space, which is written for a general audience. And we'll be speaking with him today about Jesus from Outer Space and giving a spoiler-filled review of Michael Moorcock's classic novel, Behold the Man, about a character who travels back in time to witness the crucifixion. And now here's our interview with Richard Carrier. All right, so we're here with Richard Carrier. Welcome to the show.
1: Yeah, great to be here again.
0: Okay, so we both just read this novel, Behold the Man, by Michael Moorcock. So, just overall, what did you think of the book? Did you enjoy it? Um,
1: it was okay. It's not my cup of tea. Generally, uh, the uh, <laughs> the thing that annoyed me the most is funny. Is not the time travel aspect. You have to talk about the pseudoscience. Uh, the pseudoscience of it was it was too much too Freudian. Like there's too much Freudian psychology in there, and I couldn't really tell if the author was making fun of Freudian psychology or taking it seriously.
0: Yeah. So I'll explain. So this book is from 1969. And it's by the British writer Michael Moorcock. And um, if you don't know, he was a big figure in the new wave in science fiction. So these were people in the 60s and 70s who wanted to make science fiction more literary and more about psychology and less about
1: technology and you know, sort of more left wing. Yeah, this book definitely fits in that category. Uh, yeah, he's famous for um, one big series, uh, the yeah, uh, Elric series. I think that's what people know him most for.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think Elric is definitely his best known character. I've actually, I've, I've read one of the, I read the first Elric book and he's sort of a, um, like the anti Conan the Barbarian where he's a <laughs> sort of frail aristocrat rather than a brawny barbarian. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I think a lot of what Moorcock was doing was kind of pushing back against things that were out there and, and kind of poking fun at them. And so yeah, he's definitely doing that. <laughs> yeah, certainly, yeah. 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 To some extent with,
1: with Behold the Man. <laughs> Right, yeah, I think that's definitely what's going on in this book, uh, if, if you give it that perspective. Um, so yeah, since I'm not like a big sci-fi reader, I don't really know like some of that backstory. I know the history stuff that he's playing with, though, that there's some interesting things in there, which I guess is why you have me on.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, definitely, I have a lot to ask you about that. But I guess I'll just explain a little bit more for of the science fiction stuff. So this, uh, this was originally published as a novella in 1966 in New Worlds, which was – more Cox magazine that he started to kind of you know promote the new wave and uh it won the nebula award for best novella in 67 and then he expanded it into a novel that was published in 69 although it's still it's only about 138 pages so it's still a very very short uh, novel um and I'd never read this before. I've always wanted to read it because there's a, a series called the SF Masterwork Series, and um, I really, I've really loved all the ones that I've read, and it's part of that series. So when I uh, decided I was finally gonna bite the bullet and read this, I was like, oh, I definitely. There's no one else in the world I want to talk to you about this more. Doctor <laughs> Dr. Richard Carrier. Yeah, no, that totally makes sense. Um. So, yeah. uh, So kind of the the premise is that there's a a British guy and he it's 1970 and he belongs to a Jungian discussion group through which he meets this eccentric aristocrat uh, who's also sort of an inventor who's invented a secret and secret has invented a time machine. And um, I guess what did you think, Richard, of the of the main character? His name is Carl Glogauer. Kind of what's your impression of him?
1: oh yeah i mean uh <laughs> uh not not the best of people right um real mess uh but that's intentional right he's he's written them uh no so there's a lot of context here that's interesting um so c.s lewis of course famously came out with the lord liar or lunatic uh apologetic for like the gospels have to be true because if they weren't Jesus would have to be actually the Lord or uh, a liar or a lunatic. And he can't be a liar and he can't be a lunatic. Therefore he's actually the Lord. Uh, And of course this is based on ideas of lunatics. as just babbling, ranting fools that run around and pull their hair out. But uh, of course in psychology, we know people who are mentally ill do not act that way. You can act, You can believe you're Napoleon. You can have a delusional disorder, totally believe you're Napoleon or even Jesus. There's lots of people who literally believe they're Jesus and sitting in insane asylums over this. Uh, and, but be completely functional in every other way. So, so we know like the CS Lewis's theory of psychology was completely wrong. Uh, someone really could be insane uh, and do this because insanity doesn't really work the way that, uh, CS Lewis was sort of stereotypical bigoted way that he was imagining mental illness. Um, and what Moorcock has done, I, I wonder if he's like thinking of this, right? He's thinking, oh, well, I, I know some psychology. Uh, let's write a story where Jesus actually is mentally ill. And it explains why he kills himself and well everything he does. Uh, and so he builds this whole Freudian narrative of this time traveler who goes back and it's, uh, you know, he bi- using Freudian psychology builds a, a ra- plausible rationale for why he would do what he did, leading to all the subsequent myths and legends. Uh, and so I, I thought that was a pretty clever kind of take uh, a sort of response to C.S. Lewis. And I, I wonder if Moorcock is actually thinking of Lewis's argument when he built this. He may, he may very
0: well be. I mean, wh- one line I really liked that I heard that the uh, Lewis's um, liar lunatic lord thing, I heard that referred to one time as a false trichotomy. Correct. Uh, which yeah, that was a, a good turn of phrase. But um, but yeah, so um, just to explain so this guy, Carl Glogauer, he goes back in time because he's obsessed with, he's kind of a religious seeker, and he's gone through all these different phases in his life where he's, you know, experimented with different schools of religious thought and stuff. And so he really wants to witness the crucifixion. And uh, so, spoiler warning, he goes back in time and <laughs> finds that um, that the, the the Jesus of the Gospels that that's not going to happen unless he makes it happen. And so he ends up becoming you know sort of styling himself as jesus and being crucified and that's what gets the legends
1: yeah and then the whole sub around that because there's flashes between his where he's in the past and then his own past right and then you know so there's uh like his his actual past in the 20th century and then there's this and, and it's very much built on this psychosexual history of child abuse that led him to have certain hang-ups i guess you would put it uh and that that at every stage where he's making these decisions that lead to him choosing to be crucified uh, and thus create the Jesus legend uh, it's explained in terms of his whole, his child, the childhood abuse and his backstory and his life, uh the kind of like other problems he's had with relationships and things like that. So there's this whole, subcategory of psychology going on now a lot of it is kind of i think sort of ridiculous freudian psychology but uh so i don't think uh if the way we're uh, looking at it now that i don't think he's like trying to create a realistic uh psychology thing but it is realistic within the framework of freudian psychology is the thing uh, i think one could write a book based on updated psychology and like actually do a really believable scientific reason why, uh, based on, you know, the studies of religious fanatics and cult gurus and things like that, you know, David Koresh, we have like, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of really plausible, um, uh, psycho, uh, psychosocial narratives that you could build for, to do this. Uh, it looks like Moorcock is kind of like, in, in a way, sort of poking fun at, at, Freudian explanations of things. Uh, but in, in, in its internal logic, it totally makes sense. I mean, from beginning to end.
0: Yeah. And I mean, one of the things I really want to talk to you about is how could this story be rewritten in light of developments, Yeah, not only in psychology, but in biblical studies and and so on. Um, but I mean, I really liked this book. I mean, and I think you, you, you have a lot more, you know, a lot more about the subject. So you have, I think, a lot more things that would kind of, uh, you know, irritate you than than I did. But I, I thought it was a, a, a terrific <laughs> story. And um uh, it seems, at least for 1969, it seems like Moorcock had done his homework on what was sort of known. Oh yeah, uh, there
1: there are allusions in this book to the release of the Dead Sea Scrolls, to Scientology, uh, like like there's a lot of contemporary stuff going on in here. If you don't know the history, you might miss it. Right? Uh, actually, I didn't find it very irritating. Uh, the I don't know if it's a conscious choice or if it's his style as an author. He's very sparse as a narrative, or as a narrator. Uh, so he he very he builds the scenes very simply, just the basics that you need to know where someone is, what's going on, and then the conversations, right? And then a lot of it is inner monologue. Uh, so all of the opportunities to really screw up history, uh, he bypasses, right? So there's there's not a lot of stuff. For example, he doesn't go into like how how do Jews go throughout their daily day in, in first century BC, right? Like so, he's not like trying to describe uh every detail of life he's not trying to create color uh which is where all the mistakes could arise uh he's just dr- describing scenes so simply his narrative is so um uh, uh i want to say like um minimalist in the sense in the way it's constructed uh that he actually escapes a lot of those problems so it, it becomes a plausible story in context there's not a not a lot of places where he butts up against history and makes a mistake i think
0: yeah I, I mean I'm not a big expert on Warcock, but I swear I read one time that i mean I think he wrote a lot of his novels, especially his earlier novels, very quickly. you know he said he had like a weekend off you know <laughs> just, like bang out a novel sure you know, yeah weekend so i mean this is definitely it's a, I, th- I mean I thought it was well written but it's it's definitely very minimalist and just a lot of dialogue and Um, You know, short sentences and short scenes, which I, I mean, actually, I actually like. I wish more people would write
1: 130 page novels. It
0: would make my job as a book critic a lot easier. (laughs) Uh,
1: And it works if you, if you do it right, right? There, there is a certain skill that has to be deployed because if you, if you're too simple, uh, it doesn't work or it doesn't engage, right? So, uh, so there's, there's like this difference between being like a really detailed narrative, like, uh, you know, Donna Tartt's secret history is an extremely elaborate, uh, narrative, which is beautifully done. Um, that is not Moorcock style. Uh, but to get, get away with it with Moorcock style does require some skill. And I do believe he has that from what I've read.
0: Yeah. And I just want to clarify cause this is going to be hard when talking about this book, cause you have the present of the story, which is in the past and yeah. you have his past, <laughs> which is in the present of, you know, chronologically. <laughs> so, uh, I just want to head that off, you know, we might get a little confused. Right. A little yeah. Confusing talking yeah. about it. But, yeah. um, uh,
1: the reader doesn't get confused, of course. You, it's easy to follow the, the switching back and forth. But, um, but yes, yeah, so while we're talking about it, you know, uh, third hand, people might get lost. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, um, you, you would ask, yeah, no, you'd ask, you mentioned before about, um, the psychology as the science issue. Uh, the, the only other science issue that I had with it, uh, I wanted to mention, which is a problem I have with all time travel narratives ever. Uh, and, and, and there's like a, an example here where Moorcock gets one thing right, which is like, he builds a backstory so that the character can speak Aramaic. Like, he already knows Aramaic because he studied it as part of his, you know, background obsession with religions and stuff. So, uh, so when he ends it back there, like, he does realistically depict the fact that nobody speaks English. Uh, right. So he speaks kind of like a halting Aramaic and he gets better at it over time. Uh, which is a good solve for a common problem that people overlook is like, if you're going to go back to first century Judea, you're kind of hosed communication wise, right? Cause it's very difficult uh, to do that. And so he at least thought of that part, but there's another part that people forget, which is particularly relevant now in the midst of the pandemic is virology. Uh, the, the problem with time travel is that if you went back in time, you would probably wipe out the entire population then, and they would probably kill you within months of, with viruses that you have no immunities to. Uh, so, <laughs> this is, so I think time travel authors, uh, note to time travel authors, you have to come up with some means of like a, a universal, uh, immunity so that the time traveler who goes back is not bringing viruses that, uh, everybody is not immune to, and is immune to viruses that, uh, his body has never encountered.
0: Uh, so. <laughs> That's 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 a very interesting point. Although I I have to point out that this is not a hard science fiction novel. It is not right, no it is. by any means. So right. I'm going to give you this is 100 percent of what we're told about how time travel works. This yeah, is the inventor <laughs> quote: I load those ideas that insist on treating time as a dimension of space, describing it in spatial metaphors. No wonder they get nowhere. Time has nothing to do with space. It is to do with the psyche.
1: So. That yeah it kind of gives you an idea of how um uh, which how I scientific. like right right exactly yeah he's he just creates the conceit that can create the scenario so that he can build his narrative uh, I do like that, uh, and that is very I do know that that much that that was uh, a thing a style of the time um to be at least simplistic in some cases with like not get hung up on detailing you know dilithium crystals or whatever uh to explain uh all the science or you just throw it away is like just you just mention oh dilithium crystals, but you don't have to explain the science of it. Uh, and, and you know, when you get into the 80s and 90s, there's much more push in science fiction to like get into the nitty gritty of why does this even make sense. Uh, whereas the writing style, I think then was no, yeah, he has a time machine. Do we need more explanation? <laughs> I, I thought it
0: worked really well. Yeah, and I mean, because you don't find out exactly how he ended up in the past until sort of midway, two thirds of the way through the story. And right. I, I, I thought it worked really well. I mean, it's it's sort of it tell it, it makes as much sense as it needs to, and it it's sort of, but it's not what the story is about, you know yeah 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 um okay but so so basically he um this guy carl he intends to go back to ad 29 so he can witness the crucifixion but he ends up arriving a year earlier than he meant to and so kind of bums around for a year leading up to the crucifixion and so the <laughs> the, the first thing that happens is that he falls in with a group called the essenes and meets john the baptist i'm just curious historically speaking what did you think of of that
1: well it's fiction right so um uh, one of the the cool things you can do with fiction, especially historical fiction, where we don't know a lot of things uh, historically, so uh, we don't have any evidence that John the Baptist was in any way connected to the Essenes, but we don't have any evidence that he wasn't, right? So that that's a gap that you could fill in any plausible way you want. So he's written this story as John the Baptist is kind of like the chosen prophet of the this particular Essene sect uh, that's even clearly connected to Qumran, right? So he's, this is the Dead Sea Scrolls were just being published. Uh, in the beginning of the sixties. And so there's a lot of theorizing, a lot of information and, and Moorcock has used a lot of that. Uh, he exaggerates it a little bit. Uh, but it's at least, you know, within line of, of the kinds of popular lore that was going out among the public. Uh, but not just what was actually in the Dead Sea Scrolls, but also theorizing above and beyond them. Uh, Because a lot of writing, a lot of books were coming out about that time about this is a big deal. Uh, And also the idea that the Qumran sect was an Essene sect, which has never really been established, although it's highly likely they're very similar. Um, But anyway, so he's pulled all this stuff together. and I think he's done it really well. Uh, And and, and especially in the context of the knowledge of the 60s at that time uh it sort of fits uh and and so it's it's a plausible narrative we don't have like i said we don't have any evidence that john the baptist and the essenes and the quran or any of those people were connected directly like this uh but the narrative does make sense like it could be a thing and there are many examples in here where he goes back and he finds that history is not what was written down right so that's that's he establishes that as a thing which you should expect right like if you go back in time you should expect that there's going to be all the things that we've kind of inferred about the time and the narratives we've read some of them might actually be false uh, and so that that actually fits in terms of uh, like historical fiction.
0: Is, is AD 29, is that where you would set your time machine if you were hoping to catch the crucifixion?
1: Um, well, so in the book, he, he says that most historians had determined that Jesus was crucified at the end of 29 or, or sometime in 29. Um, that, that's actually, that might have been true then. Uh, there's actually a bunch of different dates that have been proposed, and most of them are in the 30s uh i think all the dates are bogus because they're all based on theological math in the gospels that have nothing to do with when jesus was actually killed uh so i don't think we actually can be that reliable but it, we can go from paul and reverse engineer and we can we can say it had to have happened in the 30s sometime but we can't get more direct than that uh, but 29 is the earliest year ever proposed for the crucifixion of jesus so if you want to make sure you don't miss it uh then, then <laughs> 29 would be the one to go to yeah and, and that's probably what i would do too because i would want to like, it would take you a while to get settled, but you'd have to figure out the customs, the language, how to, you'd, you'd need to figure out a way to get money so you can eat. You know, like, there's a lot of things you'd have to, like, sort out, because it's basically like a, a an adventure mission. You're basically, like, going into the Congo, uh, with whatever's on your back, and, and, and then you have to, like, get your base of operations and figure stuff out, and then you can relax and wait for the whatever scene or event you're trying to, uh, watch, and then while not interfering with anything so as to prevent it. So- <laughs> 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 which, which we find out is kind of what what this guy does well—not prevent it, like he actually makes it happen. He finds out that it's not going to happen, uh, right? That's that's the, the sort of conceit. I don't know how much we want to go into uh, for the audience as to what he discovers about the actual Jesus.
0: I think this is this is we can do full spoil. I w- let's do full spoilers. Um, you know, if it you know if it yeah. comes up. But is um, is John the Baptist one hundred percent historical figure or?
1: Uh, I'd say ninety percent. Um, okay. but at least in that area, because uh, we have a mention in Josephus that I think some people propose it's an interpolation. I think it's actually pretty authentic. I think it has interpolations in it. Uh, in fact, I think that kind of proves that that section is authentic because there's an interpolation. There's a Christian who didn't like what Josephus wrote about John the Baptist. So he throws a line in there. Uh, to try and fix it that only makes sense for a Christian. Like a Jew wouldn't write that line. So the, f- you know, someone who's forging it doesn't forge the wrong story and then fix it later, right? And so it sounds like Josephus really did write this story about, uh, John the Baptist and then the Christian tried to fix it later with one line, uh, trying to fix the, the theology of atonement. Like as if Josephus would be not only obsessed with theology of atonement, but even think that his Gentile audiences were as well. Uh, no, it doesn't make any sense. So, so I think definitely Josephus wrote that. Uh, so it's a high probability that there was a real John the Baptist and the the John the Baptist who shows up in the Gospels, I think is probably based in a large part on the writings of Josephus about John the Baptist and there may have been other sources as well I mean the, the, a lot of the um, nativity narrative might have actually been adapted from stories told of John the Baptist and the porting them over onto Jesus it's we don't have proof of this but it's it makes sense when you look at the nat- the twin nativities in Luke where you have the John nativity and then you have the Jesus nativity and we, okay it looks like there's some sort of source about John that looks a lot like Jesus uh so like I said can't prove it uh but it, it's the, the kind of thing that you could play with as an author is a possibility
0: yeah well, so, so we said, yeah, so so Carl, he goes back in time and hangs out with John the Baptist for a while, and then eventually he makes his way to Nazareth, looking for Mary and Joseph and Jesus. So what did you think about the, the yeah Nazareth well, section
1: of the book? So now I'm starting to run more with the comedy theory, uh, Cause like the, the it's very disparaging the way he depicts the actual uh Mary and Joseph, and Jesus, of course, is uh, mentally disabled. Like, there's no way he's ever going to become a prophet or do anything. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and the Mary and Joe, they're like, there's actual infidelity and they're like awful people and, uh, and total Freudian fashion. Uh, the, the hero ends up having sex with Mary, uh, kind of gets raped by Mary, if, depending on how you read the narrative. Uh, so it's really like, I'm mean, like, whoa, where are we going with this? Uh, but in a sense, it is very, like, there is this kind of like dark humor going on. Uh, I guess in all of this, which disappoints, of course, Morcock, who thought that this was going to be some sort of great reverent experience, and it turns out to be uh, the uh, co- exact. Car- I'm You're sorry, of oh, Carl, yeah, Carl, the the hero, not not the author. <laughs> <laughs> there, that was a Freudian slip. Uh, so, um, yeah, so I think uh, you know, I'm, I'm now that we're talking about it more, I'm like starting to see different aspects of the way he's constructing the narrative. But uh, religious people will not like this book; they'll be very very offended.
0: Yeah, well, and and I. I mean, I, I, I'm I'm not religious at all, but I, I did like this was my least favorite part of the book because it was sort of, yeah, it was a little kind of com- it was comedic,
1: it was kind of like a little over the top, like uh, yeah, a little whereas- seedy, uh, very dark, um, uh, you know, tragic in a way, but um, and just the, and the simplicity of the style of writing it too, like had a had a bigger impact. I think it was uh, off-putting in a sense, but um, I see what the author's doing with it. I see why he's doing that. He has to put his character at, at, to the bottom, basically like such massive disappointment uh, that, uh, that he, he needs to fix it. Right. So he needs to create the legend and, and go through the process.
0: Yeah, no, no, it makes sense. I just thought like, cause like the, I thought the sort of the first act and the third act felt more, they felt pretty real to me. Mm-hmm. And then this, this felt more like satire, like sort of broad. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah I, I got that feel too. Um. But so, um. So, what do you think if if you were uh, to travel back in time, would you go to Nazareth? Is that a good, is
1: that worth investigating? Oh, no, if you're looking no, for a historical, Jesus? no. If, if I'm going back in time, I'm freaking changing history. I'm not going to go and just observe shit. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and and if if for some reason, I mean, quite frankly, if I had a time machine, I would go in the future so I could get uh skip ahead and get immortality. Um, uh, but. <laughs> Uh, But if I have to go into the past, and it has to be the Roman Empire, uh, I would probably pick like right after the victory of Vespasian. uh, And uh, from everything I've read, Vespasian seems a very pragmatic fellow. And I feel like I could go there and I could convince him to institute a proper constitutional government in exchange for certain uh, technologies of empire, uh, like the railroad, for instance, um, and the printing press, uh, possibly gunpowder and and you know that that wouldn't like fix every problem it would turn the roman empire into like a the british empire basically uh which is you know a slight improvement but still pretty far back but if we could get that constitutional government set in we could have progress social progress as well as scientific and technological progress a thousand years earlier and we could bypass the hell of the middle ages
0: okay but if if your goal was to establish the historical jesus thing once and for all
1: sure if that's what i had to do um uh, Yeah, what, well, would I go to Nazareth? Uh, I mean, I guess if I had time. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I
0: thought that there's there's a lot of reason to think that Jesus, even if he did exist, never lived in – never wasn't actually from Nazareth. Anywhere. Yeah, uh,
1: I mean the usual argument is that he must have come. That must be the one historically true detail because why would you add it? This is the Hitchens argument, right? Is uh, They, they try so hard to have him born at both Nazareth and Bethlehem. And the argument is, why would you do that unless he was really born at Nazareth and you needed Bethlehem to fit in because of prophecy? Uh, now that that you'll hear a lot, even from like uh, real scholars in Jesus studies. The problem is, is that Matthew tells us they both come from prophecy and Matthew has a tendency to try and double his fits with prophecy. And he's the one who invents the double fit. Uh, so he tries to make the prophecy about Bethlehem fit and he tries to make the prophecy about Jesus being a Nazorian fit. And so he pegs that as he comes from Nazareth. So I think i think matthew is inventing this uh he's making jesus come from two different towns because he needs to uh and to give you an example of how matthew does this um you know famously mark has jesus march into jerusalem on a donkey based on a, a passage i think in Zechariah or whatever and uh, i can't remember if it's jeremiah or Zechariah, but it's one of the prophets and there's a story about you know, the messiah will ride into town on a donkey and uh well matthew reads the original text and the original text is using a a Hebrew poetic form of duplication where you say the same thing over and over again in different words. Uh, and he mistakes the references in the original scripture as Jesus riding into town on two donkeys, a, ma- a mama donkey, a, an adult donkey, and a baby donkey, the foal of the mother donkey, simultaneously. So Matthew has written this absurd scene where Jesus is somehow straddling an adult donkey and a baby donkey simultaneously <laughs> riding into town, uh, just to make it fit more literally with scripture. <laughs> Uh, I mean, it's an absurd scene, but it shows you how Matthew's trying to duplicate things to try and make things fit scripture better. And Matthew's the one who invents the idea that Jesus was born at Bethlehem. And so, like, he's adding that in. And he gives us the reveal that even the Nazareth origin comes from scripture. Now, it's a scripture that's been lost uh, and we know there's scriptures said different things and have back then than they do now so uh so it's some scripture that was that was lost but he doesn't specify exactly where it is but he does say it comes from scripture so that's probably where mark got it too uh again there's no reference to nazareth uh or nazarenes or anything like that in paul so the first it appears is in mark uh and then the double birth narrative appears in matthew and so on so i personally i think that there's no basis for jesus actually coming from nazareth and there's a lot of other reasons why i think that's unlikely but um So yes, so it wouldn't be high on my list of things to check. Uh, For (laughs) the first thing I would want to check is to see, I mean, because if it's twenty nine, I'd want to sit around and wait until someone's talking about this particular prophet. I would try to like, you know, I would have inroads to all the local sects and see what what's what's brewing, what's going on, and and so on, and and trying to figure that out. And I would use it as double duty as a historian to just document all kinds of cool shit that's unrelated to Jesus, right? While I'm there, so. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and then maybe leave it in a time capsule, right? Like put it in a pot and bury it. So like uh, a new Nag Hammadi discovery will have uh, all my all my time traveler books about the, the era.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean, so I, I told you I was kind of interested in how could this story be rewritten from a mythicist perspective. And so I just imagine, you know, Carl would go back in time to 29 or whatever and look around and there's no, you know, there's no Mary and Joseph and Jesus or anything in Nazareth and there's no like trial or you know, like you say, like the, you know, the, um, the market, you know, or the, tem- you know, when, when Jesus drives the money lenders out of the temple, you say that temple was actually
1: like this giant fortified, you know, like, yeah, like right. armed battalions guarding <laughs> it and stuff. And- <laughs> yeah. It's an impossible scene. Right. Uh, and so, yeah, what, how would I write this book? Um, and how would we write it if we knew Jesus didn't exist now in a sense, you know, uh, it's funny that Moorcock's book, does qualify as minimal historicity in the sense that there is a Jesus; he's just not the one who becomes the crucified one, and there is an actual guy who gets crucified and gets called Jesus. So that would actually qualify in my yeah. in my well, uh, and, that, and that's what I a mean, scheme is,
0: is. That, is that, that
1: establishes right? the, the myth, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the the mythicist thesis for people who are not aware uh, is the idea that there wasn't even that right. Is the idea that um, the crucifixion, this Jesus who was crucified uh, is something that was only known through visions. This is the alternative theory, uh, that there was no actual crucifixion, uh, that there was, they just were told it in revelations that this crucifixion had occurred somewhere, possibly in, in the sky, possibly in some other, uh, you know, uh, distant realm or whatever. Uh, but it wasn't something people witnessed. It was some sort of cosmic crucifixion affected by demons at the behest of Satan and so on. Uh, and then they went around preaching this and it wasn't until decades later that this got, What's you know reified basically what's called you it got turned into a historical narrative of a guy walking around Galilee and stuff to sort of allegorize and tell the story, but that wasn't how the religion began. It didn't begin with that uh, version of thing, and it's similar to the cargo cults where the original cargo cults, which are these uh, early twentieth century Melanesian uh, messianic cults that arose they kind of syncretized Christianity with local pagan cults of those islands and they they began with shamans who would hear. Uh, secret messages, spirit messages, by putting their ears to telegraph poles. And they would, that's how the gospel sort of, uh, their gospel originated is there were a bunch of shamans. There was no single founder. Bunch of shamans were getting these communications and they just sort of emerged into a collection of teachings. And then about, you know, a few, 10, 20, 30, 40 years later, uh, all the teachings got assigned to this messianic figure called John Frum. Uh, in some islands, it's Tom Navy. In some islands, it's Prince Philip. Uh, who supposedly came to the island and gave them all those teachings so they create a historical founder who never existed in the first few decades of the religion and then all subsequent teaching of that religion it's all attributed to that one messianic figure so uh, jesus mythicism the peer reviewed academic version of it is that that's how jesus was actually created it that he's like the cargo cults so it started with revelations Decades later, he was turned into this person with a narrative and then gets killed by the Romans and stuff. That's all fiction, uh, meant to teach, uh, lessons about history lessons about theology and cosmos right. and things like that. Right. Um, <laughs> so if that were the case and you went back as a time traveler, uh, what you would find is that you would find like, depending on when you went, but you would find Peter, probably it was Peter who started all this. Peter having the original revelation, uh, of, of this and then inspiring his council of 12, cause he was probably, running a sect of Essenes perhaps, or something like that, some radical fringe sect. And then they all claim or actually have visions confirming his vision. And then, you know, so then they go evangelizing, and that's how the religion begins. And then Paul, you know, tries to persecute the church. Then eventually he claims to have a vision that converts him and so on. And so everybody's having these revelations. That's what you would find. You could more cock it, in a sense, uh, by having the person go back and there's nothing. Uh, And so they have to pretend to be Peter, pretending to have (laughs) this vision and starting their religion that way. uh, And then thinking uh, that they have changed history, not realizing that decades later they would just turn it into a narrative about a historical Jesus crucified by the Romans. And then the whole history would proceed as exactly
0: uh, as a time (laughs) time traveler. How would you find Peter? Do we have any idea where or when he was would have been having these visions? Not really.
1: Uh, so we know they're based in Jerusalem, but of course Jerusalem was possibly tens of thousands, maybe hundreds of thousands population. There's been disagreements as to that. Uh, the low level, the low counts, low population counts, about 70,000 people, um, no phone book. So, uh, I don't know how you'd find a particular person uh, among 70,000 people in an ancient city. Uh, that would probably take a while. You could probably do it. Um, so we don't know we we, and we know they were based at jerusalem after they started evangelizing but that doesn't really tell us where they started right so if you wanted to get there ahead of time you'd be pretty clueless uh you would have to follow what what fringe sects look the most similar uh and um and then you know basically stalk them you know like uh stake them out and then see where the trends are and then maybe if some guy comes around claiming that he's the Kephas, the stone, the, the, the rock, uh, and then you go, okay, that's it. But now what if Kephas named himself after the religion began? Now you've got a really difficult challenge. Uh, was he named Simon, as Acts claims that he was originally named, or the Gospels claim he was originally named? Maybe. <laughs> we don't know for sure. So it would be a challenging thing to try and figure it out. You, you could probably do it, but it would depend. And if you're writing fiction, uh, historical fiction, you could come up with a way uh, that would make sense.
0: In, um, uh, I'll, I'll mention you, I also read, you have a, a recent book out called Jesus from Outer Space, and uh, I'm going to mention a couple things from that. But one of the things that you mentioned is that there were, in, I guess in the Talmud it mentions a Jesus, and some, some early Christians believe that there was a Jesus who had lived during the reign of Alexander Janias, who died in 76 B.C., So if you had a time machine, would there be any (laughs) points in
1: going back to them and seeing if there was any Jesus? That is a valid point. Uh, And so for people who don't know this, um, so uh, there's a Western chronology and an Eastern chronology. So in the Western chronology is the one that everybody knows where Jesus was executed by Pontius Pilate. We know from other sources that Pontius Pilate governed Judea between 26 and 36 A.D., So if you wanted to go see someone get crucified by Pontius Pilate, that's the window you would go into now outside the Roman empire uh, in the Parthian empire, separate and completely separate political and social and cultural atmosphere. uh, You have the Babylonian uh, Hebrew community, the Babylonian rabbinical community eventually put down all their stories into their Talmud called the Babylonian Talmud. Um, There was also a Jerusalem Talmud, but the Jerusalem Talmud never mentions Jesus or Christianity. However, it's uh, fragmented. We don't have the complete Jerusalem Talmud, uh, whereas we do have the complete Babylonian Talmud. And it does frequently mention Jesus and Christians. Uh, but weirdly, uh, it always places uh, the Jesus myth, uh, the, the story of Jesus' execution, a uh, hundred years earlier. It puts it in on right after uh, the death of Alexander Jannaeus in some sort of Hellenized Jewish context. And he's stoned uh, by the Jewish authorities. There's no Roman because Romans aren't there yet. Uh, He's stoned by Jewish authorities in Joppa, not outside Jerusalem. Uh, And so there's this whole different narrative. He's placed in a completely different century. uh, And it's definitely the same guy. You know, it's Jesus of Nazareth, uh, mother was Mary, you know, the whole thing. So... um, so a lot of people don't know that we have these two versions. Now, usually the, because the Babylonian Talmud was written uh, uh, in the middle ages, basically the early middle ages, uh, or at least the end of antiquity uh, people. And, and we have no earlier references to this Eastern chronology. Uh, so that's usually just dismissed as some sort of uh, change or error or whatever. Uh, it's actually hard to explain. Uh, if if you think about it, uh, if there was an actual historical Jesus, it's much easier to explain if there wasn't, because then that means in different empires, people were free to place him in history whenever that was politically and socially relevant to them. Uh, and if in in the Roman empire, it would be Roman Judea. That would be exactly where you would put it because that would have the political resonance you needed, but that wouldn't have any political meaning outside the Roman empire. So they they were free to put it somewhere else. And so there's a lot of Jewish history that they could use, uh, to put, to place, uh, you know, their idea of, of where Jesus would have lived. So if Jesus didn't exist, it makes more sense of why there are these two traditions.
0: But would it be, I mean, would it be worth investigating or do you think it's like so clearly a myth that it wouldn't be worth the time to go back in time? You know,
1: I, uh, you know, I think it's low, but not vanishingly low probabilities. So I think, you know, I would say like, let's, let's say 10% chance you go back to the 30s AD and you find out, oh crap, no, it was the 70s BC. Uh, and then hopefully your time machine isn't broken like, uh, <laughs> like Carl's was, uh, and then you go, you know, okay, okay. We've got to jump back a little bit further. <laughs> uh, but otherwise, if you were setting out ahead and you only had one destination, I, I would not know what to recommend to you. like, well, you know, your best odds are at the thirties AD, but you could be wrong. Might be the seventies BC or neither. Uh, so, uh, it, this is a problem with ancient history. It's vexed with problematic sources.
0: Yeah. I also think just if you're, if you're to write this as a novel, it seems like there's all sorts of characters that you mention in um, Jesus from Outer Space who would be interesting to uh, to bring into the story. And I don't know if uh, if the chronology works or not. I guess it depends on what time exactly you were traveling to. But you mentioned like, uh, I'll just read this passage. You say, with colorful names like the Samaritan, the Egyptian, the imposter, and one mysteriously named Thutis, these guys got into actual military battles with Roman soldiers, hence they made the history books. Uh, there's another one called Eliezer, the exorcist who are like other sort of Messiah figures. So I think are historical.
1: Yeah. Figures. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, people might be interested to look on the internet. I have a talk called, uh, you're all going to die. Uh, and it was my talk. I delivered in Wichita for the, um, the, the camping, uh, prediction of the end of the world. It was on the, on the day the world was supposed <laughs> to end according to Harold camping. And, um, so I gave this Wichita talk on the on uh, the end on, and the talk title was I think officially uh, you're all going to die uh, how the Jews kept failing to predict the end of the world and accidentally caused Christianity uh, and so I, it's kind of a humorous narrative but it's all historically true uh, that I go through but one of the points I make uh, you know later in that talk is that you have all these messianic figures trying to well as Josephus paints them they are deliberately trying to portray themselves as a new Joshua. And for people who don't know, Joshua is just Jesus. Those are the same word. They just get translated, uh, transliterated differently in, trans- in modern translations. Jesus is Joshua. It's the same name. In ancient texts, there's no difference between them. Uh, so these guys are trying to portray themselves as the new Joshua. They're trying to part seas, topple walls miraculously, and uh, doing all the Joshua things. Uh, and that would be very messianic because Joshua is the one who conquered the Israel, the Israeli holy land. And so to be the new Joshua, you're portraying yourself as the new conqueror. Uh, and then they're, uh, portraying themselves as messianic, as bringing upon the end of the world. Uh, so they're, they're which makes them a Christ, right? So these are all Jesus Christ's according to Josephus. He doesn't use the word Jesus or the word Christ, but he describes them in such a way that this is clearly how he would have conceptualized them. And so we know there are tons of these guys trying to get themselves killed at the same time deliberately because, as the book of Daniel says, the book of Jeremiah said, uh, that the reason God wasn't bringing about the end of the world is because of the sins of the Jews. And only when the Jews would stop sinning would he come and do it. Uh, but if you have this great sacrifice, as the book of Daniel has the uh, guy die, uh, it's when the, the the Messiah in Daniel 9, when he dies, uh, there's kind of – sort of relates this to an atonement for sins. And so if if his death can atone for all the sins, then the sins are canceled. Now God has no reason not to bring about the end of the world. And so he does. Uh, And so it looks like there's a ton of these guys trying to make this happen. They're trying to, Preach the end of the world, get themselves killed so that their sins can atone for the end, for and, and appease God so God will finally come and wipe out the Romans, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and so it seems like this is a trend of things. Uh, and so Christianity would fit historically into that. Uh, so if you went back there, you might have the problem that there's like 50 Jesus Christs <laughs> hmm. and they're all getting themselves killed and for the same reason. And so that, that could be very challenging. Uh, for, uh, for a historian. But, or a your, but your,
0: uh, your your hero could be the Samaritan or the imposter or Thutis. Right,
1: because these are all nicknames, right? They're not the actual name. Even Jesus might be a nickname. It just means God's Savior. So that's a very suspicious name. A guy named God's Savior becomes God's Savior. Uh, so that sounds almost like it's an assigned name, not an actual original name. So, and it well could be, uh, right? And so uh, so it would, be, it would be hard to figure out like which one was actually the one.
0: Yeah. Well, actually, I, there, you, I, there's a whole list here of like sort of suspicious, like con- uh, suspiciously convenient names. Uh, like so Barabbas means son of the father. Judas means Jew. Yeah. Tyrus means awaken. Um, there was one thing in Moorcock's book where I'd never heard this before. He says that the written words for son of a carpenter and Magus were almost the same and could easily be confused. Do you
1: yeah, I mean? yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I looked into that. So I'm not I don't know Aramaic so i couldn't uh do that i did some research to find that i could not find that anywhere so i don't know where he got that information here i have a note on it let me find it do you remember what page it's on uh
0: 113 in it is. Yeah. edition
1: yeah yeah uh let's see yeah so uh, what does he say um the written words for son of the carpenter and magus uh, were almost the same, and the confusion had come about in this way. Now, I suspect there's probably some scholar wrote this at some point in some journal or something in the 60s, and Moorcock got a hold of it, uh, and and that's what he's repeating. Uh, I think that's probably more likely than he that he's just making this up. Uh, so the word is harass, um, uh, which um it means craftsman. So uh. And, and I think that the logic of it is, oh, so, okay, yeah, so I did check this out. So there is logical. The logic of it is that craftsmen could theoretically mean source, like witches' crafts, right? So, like, sorcerer and craftsman, you could think they overlap. Now, I don't, I didn't find any actual evidence that that was ever the case, that they ever referred to witches or sorcerers as craftsmen. Um, but one could speculate that they did. So I I think like there's at least a connection to the Aramaic in there. Um, And he's exaggerated it just a little bit uh, into, uh, you know, like elighting all of the scholarly inferences that go from A to B and just making, Hmm. Oh, it could mean the same thing. There are a few other places in the book where he does that. Like uh, he, he goes through when he describes the Essenes uh, and he gives a list of things. The Essenes sound just like the Christians and, he's taken actual writing about, uh, modern scholarship about the Essenes and exaggerated it a little bit. Uh, so for example, it says, well, they also taught, uh, love your neighbor as yourself. And it's like, well, that's sort of true, but not directly true. Right. So like, it, it's a bit of a, uh, you're glossing over a bunch of inferences, right. Uh, from the evidence to a conclusion. Um, and he's just presenting it as, oh, this is what Carl learned about the Essenes. And then, and then having it, turn out to be true because he goes out there and finds it. So as a historical fiction, it works. Um, But I I wouldn't uh, use this as a a historical book.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, sort of the clear implication to me, you can tell me what you think about this, is if the Aramaic words for carpenter and magician are easily confusable, that the idea that Jesus was a carpenter might have come after the idea that he was a magician and someone just got confused about that point at some, somewhere along the way.
1: Uh, Actually, the current scholarship, on the confusion would not be that confusion uh i do know that ideas were bouncing around of jesus having been mistaken as a magician because that's what the talmud says uh, that he was a magician who learned his sorcery in egypt etc um and so that's a talmudic belief um and uh but the thing is the most common view is that the word for craftsman that appears in the greek of of mark because this is the first we hear of this by the way is in mark we don't hear of it uh anywhere else But the word is the same word that is used uh, to refer to God as the creator, the craftsman of the universe. Right? So when, when Mark writes the scene that uh, is this not like they're, they're saying, how can he work miracles? Isn't this guy just the carpenter? Uh, That's actually a joke, right? It's a joke for the reader. They are not realizing that they're talking to the craftsman as in the creator of the universe. Uh, and of course, at this time, when this was written, the creator was an assigned being. It wasn't, so this wasn't Trinitarianism. Um, when you look in Paul, the view is that God created Jesus at the beginning of time and then told Jesus to make everything. So Jesus is the actual artificer, the actual architectos, the actual craftsman uh, of the universe uh, following God's orders, basically. And so when Mark is writing, the, he's creating a sort of hidden joke, a sort of irony uh, Mark loves irony, by the way, it's in every single chapter of his book is filled with irony. So this irony is that the, the Jewish elite, there are not figuring out that this is actually the guy that God assigned to create the universe. So they're saying, but he's merely the craftsman. Uh, right. And so that, that's the ironic joke. Right. Uh, and so mm-hmm. I think that I think that the idea was created on purpose by Mark. As a joke, I don't think there was ever any actual legend that Jesus was a craftsman. Uh, so that, that's the the thing that you'll find more commonly discussed in, in scholarship today. Um, but as historical fiction written in 1969, I think uh, that's a clever little bit there—the confusion of craftsmen with maggots to invent that.
0: Yeah. Well, so you, so you mentioned, um, or you mentioned in in uh, Jesus from Outer Space that there were all these. Um, dying and rising gods and virgin births and savior cults all in this sort of time and place and um, there were even Romulus passion plays so you say it was basically just like the Jesus passion plays just for Romulus before Jesus would have been crucified or anything yeah Um, could you have a character like a time travel character like Carl interacting with people who could he watch a Romulus passion play or meet somebody
1: who was a follower of Zalmoxis or Something like that? Uh, yeah, I mean, it depends on where he went, right? So uh, this does actually come up with something I did make a note on in the book. Uh, so if, if you were to do – if you wanted to see a play like that, that would be a pagan ritual. It would have to be in a pagan city. It's not going to happen uh, in uh, in Judea. Now, there were a few cities in Judea that had uh, pagan quarters, but even those appear to have um, adhered to Jewish law. So they, they, they kept their paganism indoors basically – um now there there is if you look there are some uh Hellenized cities on or around the borders of Judea uh that would Tyre is an example, so you know, the Gospels have Jesus visit Tyre or at least come near the city of Tyre now Tyre was rife with some of the most prominent pagan uh passion plays and, and rituals and, and a lot of mystery cults were there. Uh, so that is a place where you might have seen uh, a Romulus play performed. Um, you would also have probably have seen the pageants of other religions that had dying and rising motifs, like the Inanna Tammuz cult, uh, which was centered there. Uh, there's the, the Hercules-Milkart cult was there. And so there's a, there's a lot of these uh, dying and rising cults, that were mystery cults that were actually centered there in Tyre. So you could you could do that. Um, Zalmox's cult was Celtic. Uh, so you might see that, uh, you might find that religion in Galatia where Paul wrote, wrote letters to the Galatians. Galatia, Galatians means Celts, by the way. So it's because of Celtic invasion hundreds of years earlier in the middle of Turkey or what is now Turkey was a whole basically, uh, center filled with, uh, celts that had settled there and so the galatians that paul's writing to are actually celtically influenced so they would know of Zalmoxis cult um now whether there would be any of their adherents so far down south that you would see stuff like that in tyre or or in the decapolis the the 10 cities of the greeks that are just adjacent to judea um i don't know uh we don't have any direct evidence that the the celtic mysteries were that far south They they may have been but we don't know but, uh, the one, the thing that reminds me of the book was in page 113. It's the same page that we were just talking about. Uh, he has a paragraph where he talks about how Galilee uh, was very Gentile was filled with Gentiles. And he, this doesn't become a major plot point, but he does talk about it. Now this is a good example of something that was going on at the time in scholarship in the sixties is this idea was being pushed a lot that they were the, taking the, the scriptural reference to Galilee of the Gentiles seriously and proposing the view that there was a lot more gentiles in galilee uh than in uh, judea Uh, galilee's just north of judea right and uh the idea being that the reason jesus is depicted as hanging out with a lot of gentiles which is weird uh is oh well there must have been a lot of gentiles around uh and now that's since been kind of refuted the scholarship has gone in and found that There are very few Gentiles in Galilee. It wasn't like that at all. Uh, But Moorcock is working from scholarship of his time, and you see that reflected in there. The truth is the Galilee of the Gentiles just meant um, that it was – this was like way, way, way before – centuries before this time. And it was more of a political term rather than uh, – it it had more to do with – there were a lot of separate nations in there. It didn't necessarily refer to non-Jewish uh, dominance of the region. Uh, and so the, the scholarship now is pretty much saying that the Galilee of the Gentiles didn't mean Galilee of the Gentiles. It meant something else. And, uh, so we, and, and there's no evidence of a heavy Gentile presence in Galilee. So that's changed. The scholarship has changed. But Morcock wouldn't know that. He would be working with what was to him the latest cutting edge scholarship, which in the sixties was arguing that the Gentiles were, were prominent in Galilee. Mm-hmm.
0: I also just want to give you a chance to talk about Jesus from Outer Space, because it
1: sounds like just from the title, it sounds like a very sci-fi kind of <laughs> yeah. book. In. And it has a sci-fi cover, uh, which I really love. Uh, Rena Devon is the artist of that, did a fantastic job um, creating the cover art. Uh, yeah. So for people who don't know, uh, I published a peer-reviewed academic monograph on this, which is on the history of City of Jesus back in 2014. Uh, I have since condensed it down into a colloquial pop market summary of the the thesis there. And it's like 200 pages, I think. It's not a lot. Uh, And um, I can't remember now. Is it 200 pages? Well, it's in that vicinity. Uh, It called Jesus from Outer Space. And it's just no footnotes, just a quick few chapters to get you introduced to the theory and its context and why it makes sense. And the idea, I mean, the, the central concept in the title is that the first Christians believed Jesus was a space alien. They believed he came down from outer space. And this is true, even if he existed, right? So we see this, even in the writings of Paul, even if there was a historical Jesus from the earliest we have, they're talking about him being a pre existent alien being who lived up in the, in outer space, literally, and lived up there somewhere and flew down and became incarnate, assumed a body, like a body suit of a mortal man, uh, walked around on earth and then got himself killed. And so even the first Christians, even if there was a historical Jesus who was actually crucified by Pontius Pilate, the first Christians were preaching that he was this space alien. He was like um, Klaatu from uh Day of the Earth Stood <laughs> Still. Uh, and and that was their view. Uh, and you really don't understand the origins of Christianity if you don't understand this. Uh, and there's a lot of pushback against it because of the anachronistic belief that, well, that he didn't come from outer space. Like uh he, he came from heaven. And it's like, yes, yes, but back then that was outer space. The idea that heaven was an other dimension that's not, you can't get to it in this universe. It's somewhere else. That idea is modern. That did not exist back then. Back then, heaven was literally up there. You could point to it. If you had a telescope, you could watch it. If you had a rocket, you could go to it. Uh, and, and that was what heav- the heaven was and that's actual planets up there and people live on the planets and they're, you know, angelic superior, uh, beings, uh, which means space aliens, right? These are extraterrestrials, literally, uh, so that literally Jesus was from outer space in the earliest Christian teaching. Now, once you accept this and you understand this is the view that they had in the world and the view of Jesus, the idea that they were imagining Jesus through revelations rather than actually meeting him. Uh, on earth makes a lot more sense so if you put it in its original context you start to realize that this idea this uh, that the religion began in revelations as paul says and was only turned into a historical jesus decades later or i should say an earthly jesus to be more specific um that actually makes a lot more sense when you start looking at it in context and that explains the title of the book and then the book goes into detail as to all why all the objections to this don't make any sense uh and 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 that's the that's the purpose of the book Well, yeah, let
0: let me just read this passage from Warcock's book, which I think puts this really well. He says, The Essenes had seen stranger things than his time machine. They had seen men walk on water and angels descend to and from heaven. They had heard the voice of God and his archangels, as well as the tempting voice of Satan and his minions. They lived constantly in the presence of God and spoke to God and were answered by God when they had sufficiently mortified their flesh and starved themselves and chanted their prayers beneath the blazing sun of Judea.
1: Yeah. Uh, A really accurate um, psychological explanation of, uh, vision cult culture, which was going on at the time. So yeah, that that's actually accurate. Uh, I I don't know to what extent the Essenes specifically engage in those specific actions, but, uh, but those were common ways, uh, uh, sleep deprivation, uh, mortification, you know, actual, you know, beating yourself until, you know, repetitiously and ritually for like hours on end until you start hallucinating. Uh, these were techniques known at the time of ways to hallucinate. And, these these sects especially these fringe sects were very obsessed with having visions and so they were looking for ways to do it and a lot of them might have attracted uh schizotypal persons which is people who don't have schizophrenia but are highly prone to hallucinate uh and um and so it's another example of where they're not mentally ill uh but they do hallucinate rather readily and these are cultures that fully accept them and accept these hallucinations as real encounters with the divine. They thought even dreams, by the way, you could meet gods and angels and demons in dreams. And that that was in from their point of view, you were actually meeting them, your soul was going somewhere and meeting them and encountering them for real. So this was definitely an accurate portrayal of the zeitgeist of that time. I mean, people were having these visions all the time. And this is another example of how you have to understand it in context. We have a very um hallucination hostile culture now where if hallucination is immediately medicalized as a mental disorder uh no it's not respected as real and so on this is a radically different culture that we live in now from what was going on back then in that culture hallucinations were respected as real visions and you could actually move up in the ranks of a religious movement the more uh and more fascinatingly you hallucinated encounters with the divine so hallucination was respected as a real component of their culture at the time and this, ex- again, explains the context of the origins of Christianity much more uh, than our anachronistic understanding today.
0: Yeah. Could you talk about, this was kind of new to me. This is from uh, Jesus from Outer Space. You say, even the author of the book of Revelation seems to have believed Jesus was born in outer space, describing his mother as a celestial being who was pregnant in heaven, and while pregnant had to escape Satan's clutches in heaven, and whose baby was snatched up to be hidden near God's throne in heaven.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It does appear to say that, yeah. <laughs> now, what exactly is because going on no there? Dispute about that—that's what
0: it says. Or? Well,
1: uh, so the view there's a lot of. Well, scholars aren't decided on this, right? So there's a lot of debate as to what's going on in here. Uh, some some of the view is that there's a simultaneous cosmic drama that there's there's something going on in the heavens that is copying what's going on on Earth, so that so that you can have it both ways, right? So you can have there's the actual historical Jesus narrative. But then at the same time, there's this cause, something going on in outer space is the same stuff. Uh, that's one interpretation. Another interpretation is that all the cosmic stuff is allegory for earthly stuff. So that it, even though Revelation is literally describing all this going on as going on in outer space, he it's really a secret code for stuff that went on on Earth. Uh, and that's another interpretation. Uh, there's, there's not really good evidence for any of these interpretations. Uh, the one thing that we do know is that the author of Revelation is being highly allegorical, highly symbolical, uh, is not uh, writing directly literally. So that leaves open a huge amount of interpretations as to what's going on. It's very similar to the Revelation's use of the number of the beast. And it describes the number of the beast uh, as, you know, uh, either 616 or 666 as different manuscripts that say different things. Uh, people try to say that that must mean Nero, but it doesn't actually outright say it's Nero. Uh, so you have to kind of like go through stages of inferences to sort of say, well, it must mean Nero or, but maybe it means someone else. or Maybe it means something else. Maybe it means someone in the future. We really don't know because he's writing deliberately, cryptically, uh, whoever wrote the book of Revelation. And so that it runs into the same problem. Nevertheless, it does certainly seem like he's talking about cosmic events. Uh, and, and it may be that, like, this is the stuff that you're, uh, that there's the secrets that you're supposed to be revealed, that if you are a true initiate, you will understand that all of this stuff did, in fact, take place in the heavens, exactly as he's describing, and you will understand what they mean. Uh, which is the key thing? Like the, this, he's writing it as sort of sort of space drama, uh, but all of these events actually have other cosmic meanings. Those other things that happen in the in the universe based on these events, and so his idea is that the the true initiate will understand what the secret meaning is, uh, but from analyzing the celestial events. So uh, I I wouldn't use it as slam duck evidence that Christianity originally taught a celestial drama. We have to infer that from other evidence, Uh, but it is supporting evidence. It it does uh, jive with it. It it, agrees with it.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, as you say, also, uh, Paul believed the Garden of Eden resided in outer space somewhere in the vicinity of Venus or the sun. So I mean it seems like there was a lot of
1: Yeah. Uh yeah, stuff we have like this going on. We have this in the early book called The Book of Adam and Eve. It's one of these scriptures that didn't end up in the canon later. Um which clearly was used by Paul. The early Christians regarded it as scripture because Paul's referencing in um Second Corinthians twelve, Paul references the life of Adam and Eve. He doesn't cite the book, but he talks about paradise being in the third heaven. And that uh, either he or someone he knows visited there, he went there in some fashion uh, to talk to, to get secret messages from alien beings up on the third heaven. And in the life of Adam and Eve, we know that that's where the original Garden of Eden was. And then when Adam and Eve fell, you know, the fall of Adam, it was literally falling from the third heaven to earth. Uh, and and so, um, so we know that there was this Jewish lore that the paradise originally, the original Adam and Eve, and that means original garden, original soil from which Adam was formed, and everything resided up in the heavens. Uh, and probably in their conception, this would mean it depends on which geomet- geocentric scheme they were using as to whether it would be the sun or Venus. Uh, different, different possibilities based on the, which order of planets you put. Uh, but they're basically like living there is the idea. That's where the paradise was. That's where Adam and Eve originally lived and where Adam and Eve are still buried according to the life of Adam and Eve. The angels come down and get their bodies and bring them back up and bury them in paradise in heaven. Uh, so, um, so yeah, there's all, this is really weird, right? This sounds very sci-fi, but this was Hmm. normal, normal cultural belief at the time.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is also, I I love this stuff so much, and this is so interesting. We're almost out of time, but I did also just want to mention that you had an appearance last year on the Daily Atheist Morning Show talking, it's like a full hour just about science fiction. Um, I'll I'll tease some of the topics. Oh, yeah,
1: yeah. That was a good talk. I really enjoyed that. There's a lot of interesting points we hit. Yeah, you you can hear Richard talk about how Aristotle
0: was a science fiction author, how Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy was his introduction to philosophical sci-fi. Uh, how Roy Batty from Blade Runner is a good example of secular morality and how Battlestar Galactica really captures what it's like to live on a big ship.
1: Yeah. <laughs>
0: so I yeah, highly yeah. recommend that.
1: Yeah, there's a lot of fun stuff in there. Yeah.
0: And again, so that's the Daily Atheist Morning Show with Richard Carrier. Um, all right. So why don't we uh, start wrapping this up? Richard, do you have any uh, any final thoughts or any other projects you want to let people know about?
1: Uh, The only, the only big thing going on now uh, is that I do teach courses online every month, simple, easy, affordable uh, courses, requires some self-motivated learning, but uh, you get to talk, you get to ask me all the questions you want for a month, Uh, an expert in various fields. And I teach in philosophy and history, various subjects. You can go to my blog at richardcarrier.info.info, and you can find uh, the classes link to look and see what kind of classes I teach, Uh, the super cheap uh, super simple uh, things on various subjects. And uh, everything else you want to know about me, my Facebook wall, my uh, Twitter feed, uh, my blog. Uh, if you want to find my books, I've written many books, of all, almost all of them available on Audible, read by me as well. Uh, all of that stuff you can find at richardcarrier.info. All
0: right, great. So we've been speaking with Richard Carrier about his book, Jesus from Outer Space, and about Michael Moorcock's novel, Behold the Man. So Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I always love it. And that was our interview. So big thanks again to Richard Carrier for joining us on the show. And remember that Geeks Guide to the Galaxy is made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please sign up to give us a dollar or two per episode over at patreon.com geeks. And if you'd rather make a one-time contribution, you can do that via check or PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com slash crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks everyone for listening. And we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit GeeksGuideShow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell. No one.
1: Thank you for listening.